Hello and welcome to episode 45 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Jim Callis. Jim is a senior writer for MLB.com and MLBpipeline.com. MLB.com just updated their top 100 prospect list. And of course, with all the prospects traded at the deadline, there's no one better to talk to than Jim to get an update on all of these things. Jim, welcome back to the podcast. Glad to be here, Ross. Hope you're doing well. Thank you. Well, let's get into some of the deadline deals first. Uh, the Phillies have apparently wanted two elite prospects for Cole Hamels for the better part of two years. They didn't get that, but they did get four prospects who all seem to fall in that 50 to 100 range. Did they get enough for Hamels in the end? I think they got the most realistic. I don't think they got the best that they could really expect. I, I, I just think it's one thing to say, hey, we want Mickey Betts or Blake Swihart or Corey Seager or Julio Urias, and you just don't see prospects like that get traded. The, the best prospect, and we'll probably touch more on him in a little bit, who, who got traded at the deadline was Daniel Norris. And I don't think it's any coincidence that Daniel Norris was traded by an organization where the GM has not been to the playoffs so far in, in six years, and the team president's about to change. And, you know, if they don't make playoffs this year, the GM may be looking for a new job. Not, not that it was a bad trade, but I just think they had a little bit more incentive to trade. I, I just don't think you're going to get people to give up elite prospects. I, so, anyway, that said, I, I thought the Phillies did about as good as they could have done. You know, they got three guys off of our top 100. They got Jake Thompson, who has one of the best sliders in the minors. I think he has a chance to be number two or three starter. They got Nick Williams, an outfielder who's got tremendous bat speed and has made great strides this year with his plate discipline. And they got Orihal Alfaro, who probably has the best combination of raw power and arm strength among minor league catchers, even though he's out for the year after ankle surgery. And I think to get those three guys and then, and then a couple of, of depth arms and guys like Jared Eikhoff and Alec Asher, I think that was about as good as you were going to get for Cole Hamels, and, and it made sense to make that trade. You know, you, you go back and you look at the Rangers. You know, they didn't get Joey Gallo. They didn't get Nomar Mazzara. I, I just, even for a guy like Cole Hamels, you can control for four years. I just don't think you're going to see people give up prospects like that. I'm curious what the range of value is. Do you think that there's more value in having one top 10 prospect than there isn't having four guys that in that range between 50 and 100? I'd rather have the one guy at the top because... I know if you look at study, people have done studies, you know, based on wins above replacement, you know, on the various top 100 prospect lists. You know, I was at Baseball America for years, and people have done studies on those lists. They've done studies of the draft, and there's there's a sharp drop off after the first few guys on either of those lists. And I think you win with superstars and, and stars, and I'd rather have a guy near the top, one guy near the top of the list, who has a chance to be a superstar. Then say, you know, three guys in the middle of the list. And the thing is, too, you know, the quality, you know, quantity is nice, but you know these guys aren't all going to pan out. You know, I, I like the three guys I got, the main three guys the Phillies got, but the odds that you're going to have Thompson and Williams and Alfaro all be as good as we think they're going to be, that's pretty slim. So I, I'd rather, you know, if you give me my choice having those three guys or I could have Joey Gallo and Nomar Rosara, I would take the Joey Gallo or the Nomar Mazzara, but, you know, again, I just don't think teams are going to trade those guys. I, I'd, it'd be interesting. I had not come back and looked, but, I mean, I'd be curious to see, you know, recent examples of guys who were kind of consensus top ten overall prospects being traded. It just does not happen very much. I wonder, were Montero and Pineda top ten when they dealt were dealt for each other? Uh, you know, I think Montero probably was. And I, th- I want to say, I think Pineda had a year of big league experience, right? So I don't think he would have been at that point. Yep. But, but you're right, Mont- Jesus Montero might be the last one, and, and then that one certainly did not turn out like people expected. 
people are paranoid. No one wants to be the guy that trades Jeff Bagwell or that trades Adam Jones at this point. We saw that a lot this year, that a lot of the players moved at the deadline. A lot of the prospects were pitchers. Yeah, I mean, and I think, I don't know if that's because, you know, if the implication is, okay, there's more risk with pitchers, so teams are maybe a little bit more you know, willing to trade them. Okay, maybe, but I, I think it's also just the desire for pitching, is that teams are on the hunt for pitching, and okay, if you're not going to give me your elite prospect, then, then you need to give me some pitching. I, I think it was probably more the latter. Daniel Norris was the highest-rated prospect moved at the deadline. Tell me what the Tigers are getting with him. You know, I think they're getting a guy who, who, you know, two, three years down the road, I'm not saying he will be this good, but, I mean, you could have a front-line left-handed starter like the one you traded you know, to get him in David Price. And I thought the trade made sense from the Tigers' standpoint. You, you don't want to become what the Phillies have become, where, you, where you're a team that was in it to win it all in year after year after year, and then you didn't realize when the window was closed and you kept trying to keep the team together for a couple of years, and then you had a bunch of old guys who nobody really wanted and it limited what you could do. I think... You know, realistically, they probably weren't going to re-sign Price. Um, they probably weren't going to re-sign Yoannis Spedes, who, they, because of the way his contract is structured, they could not have even gotten compensation for Suspedis. Uh So I, I think both those trades made sense. And, you know, I mean, Daniel Norris just needs a little bit more command and control, which is understandable. You know, he's, what, 21, 22 years old. But, I mean, he's got, you know, well above average fastball and a really good slider and change-ups a pretty good pitch at times, too. And, you know, it just needs to, to throw a few more strikes. So it was interesting to me that, Ross, I mean, you look at you know, what he did. You know, Toronto seemed to need a pitching. Daniel Norris was up in April. And, yeah, he was struggling with his control command a little bit, but he was still getting results. I think he, he might have had the lowest DRA and whip of anybody on that staff after April. Um, he got sent to the minors to work on his command and control. And it was still struggling with them a little bit down there and, and never got the call back up. You know, when they were turning to guys like Felix DeBron and Matt Boyd, who was – also in the David Price trade. So, you know, I'm not sure if, if he frustrated the Blue Jays or not, but I, but I thought that was a nice pickup for the Tigers. The Blue Jays also traded Jeff Hoffman to get Tulowitzki. Will his stuff play in Colorado? Well, I don't know if anybody's stuff plays in Colorado, at least not as well as it does elsewhere. But, I mean, you know, Hoffman's an interesting guy for a number of reasons. I mean, I, I really liked him in college. You know, before he got hurt, he had a chance to be number one overall pick. His velocity's come back. He, he's thrown strikes pretty quick for a guy who came back as quick as he did from Tommy John. Um, I mean, he's got two pretty nasty breaking balls, too. But even in college, he did not miss as many bats as you would think he would. And, you know, I mean, I'm not trying to read too much into the guy coming right back off Tommy John surgery, but for a guy who's touching 98 and, and has, you know, a pair of pretty good breaking pitches, He's not striking out a guy for inning in the minors. So as much as I like Jeff Hoffman, and I think it's tough for anybody to pitch in Colorado, for a guy who doesn't miss as many bats as you might think he should, that might be more of a problem. Colorado might be a little bit more of a problem for him than somebody else. I saw on your Twitter that you thought the Cardinals gave up too much to get Brandon Moss. Tell me about the pitcher they gave up in Kaminsky. Yeah, you know, and again, I mean, I, I keep prefacing this. I, I've done this for 25 years. I've been covering got prospects for 25-plus years. And, you know, I know these guys aren't can't miss. So I, I, it's not like when I, I started Baseball America in the late 80s, and I'd be like, oh, all these prospects are so good. Okay, you know, some of these guys aren't going to pin out. And and I realize, you know, Rob Kaminsky is not a sure thing. But I, I just don't understand what, what a guy like Brandon Moss, who's having the worst year of his major league career, he's kind of a one-tool guy at this point, uh, you know, the Cardinals were going to the playoffs anyway, even if they don't trade for Brandon Moss. I mean, I don't think there's any way they miss the postseason. I don't see him as a difference maker. Small sample size, but he hasn't hit a ton in the playoffs. And he kind of, for, for me, Ross, falls in the category of, 
I just think playoff baseball is a different level of baseball. You, you get much better pitching. You're, you're seeing, you know, the, the people shorten up their pitching staffs. And, and I think Brandon Moss is the type of guy who kind of gets exposed when he faces that high-quality pitching on a consistent basis in playoffs. It, or, and that's been the case when he was with Oakland. But, you know, Kaminsky, I mean, you're talking about a guy who's one of the better curveballs in the minor leagues. He's a lefty who throws in the low 90s. Changeup's pretty solid. He throws a lot of strikes. But the only real knock you'd have on him, you know, and he's performed everywhere he's been, one of the youngest pitchers in his league, first round pick a couple of years ago. He's about five foot eleven. But but that said, he's left handed. Um and he kinda of pitches with a chip on his shoulder. He he hates hearing that he's too small to be a starter. There, there's no reason yet to think he's not gonna be a starter. And even if you don't believe he's gonna be a starter, his curveball is so good, I think this guy could be a left late inning lefty reliever. You know, I think his floor is very high and I think he could be a number three starter. I, I just was shocked that the Cardinals, that you would, I guess for me, if I'm giving up Rob Kaminsky, I would think I'd get a better player back in the trade than 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 Brandon Moss. Or if I have my heart set on Brandon Moss, I don't have to give up Rob Kaminsky to get him. I, I just was kind of surprised by that. I don't know if they overreact a little bit to Matt Holiday getting hurt the night before the trade, but I woke up that morning and I saw on Twitter there was some talk that it was a possibility, and I was like, "Well, one of those was okay. Who else is in the deal? That doesn't make sense." Um, and I didn't really believe it, but no, I thought, you know, again, not a can't miss guy, but you know, I just that that trade floored me. That that was one I just really didn't get from the Cardinals' perspective, or why they thought that they'd need to give up Kaminsky to get Brandon Moss. The Cardinals have had this unbelievable pipeline of talent coming in, and they're great at developing that talent. But have they reached a point where their system is too depleted going forward? I don't know if I'd say too depleted, but it's it's not, you know, for years it was one of the best in baseball and very productive, and it's thinned out now. I mean, there's still some talent. Uh, I really like Alex Reyes a lot. He's one of the better pitching prospects in the minors. Um, you know, Jack Flaherty, who was their first-round pick last year, I like. And they've got some outfielders, guys like Nick Plummer, this year's first-round pick, and you know, Charlie Tilson's an athletic outfielder. But it, the system is not as deep as it was. Uh, you know, I don't think they're in dire straits because I think the big league team is pretty good and pretty young. I think they're going to contend for a while, and they still have some guys. But it, it's much more middle-of-the-pack system than one of baseball's best. I was surprised with the Peraza deal. Uh, the Braves have done a good job since the start of the offseason, really, gathering young talent. That they dealt Peraza was a bit surprising to me. Was it surprising to you? Yeah, it was. I mean, I guess they really like Hector Oliveira, the Cuban defector, who I think we'll see in the big leagues pretty soon. Um, and the Braves will give him a chance to show what he can do. And, you know, the, Do- you know, I mean, the, the Dodgers basically ate a bunch of salary. I think they ate. You know, I think Oliveira had, what, a $62.5 million deal, and I think they're basically eating half of it because they're assuming the whole bonus payment. Um, and it made it much more affordable for the Braves. But, I mean, the Braves don't only give up Praza. They gave up Alex Wood in that trade, too. And, you know, Wood's a young, capable, big league starter. Um, I mean, I, I do kind of like Zach Bird a little bit um, that they got back from the Dodgers. You know, they got a supplemental first-round pick. That would be useful. But, yeah, that, that one surprised me a little bit. That they, I mean, I guess the Braves really believe in Hector Oliveira, but it was kind of surprising to see him trade Peraza. Now, I, I will say, you know, I don't think this diminishes his value means you should get rid of the guy. But I do think Peraza maybe was a little bit more expendable for the Braves than he would be for somebody else because, one, I think he's actually capable of playing short, and they have Anderson Simmons there. They have him at second base. Um, and as much as I like Peraza, I think he's he's very good in some ways and limited in others. I think he's a very good contact hitter. I don't think there's going to be any power there. He can really run. Um, 
but I don't think he's going to be a huge dynamic force. I think he's going to be a, a effective guy. Um, but that said, you know, they, they have Jace Peterson's having a nice year for them. They got him from the Potters in offseason trade. And then Oz Hyeno Albies, who is in the Futures game, they have a very similar player. I think Albies is extremely similar to Peraza. Um, he probably will want to move him for short, assuming Anderson Simmons is still there. So maybe they just felt like, hey, we've got Jace Peterson now. We have Albies coming, and we really like Hector Oliveira, so we make the trade. The Brewers found themselves in a tough situation with Carlos Gomez. They had to deal with the Mets. That fell through for medical concerns. And whenever a deal falls through for medical concerns, I feel like that player is immediately devalued. Did they do well given that circumstance with the trade to Houston? I think so. I mean, you have you still have disputed information over which player had the physical concerns and whether or it was the Mets backing out because they were taking more money on with Gomez than they wanted. But no, I, I think they did. Again, you know, Carlos Gomez is not going to be there for the long term. I really like Brett Phillips. I think he's a little bit unheralded, uh, you know, because I think the Astros system had so many good young players that he got lost in the shuffle a little bit. But Brett Phillips has a chance to be solid or better across the board. Um, I think he has a chance to stay in center. If he doesn't, he is one of the better arms in minor leagues. So he'll easily fit and right. Uh, very athletic, can hit, he can run, he's got power. Really like him. Um, Domingo Santana, I'm probably a little bit lower on than others. I, I think it's more the the sum is a little bit, or the the whole is a little bit less than the sum of the parts. But he, you know, he kind of fits that right field profile too. He's got power, he's got arm strength. Uh, you know, needs to show he can hit major league pitching on a consistent basis because he's had a lot of strikeouts in a very limited time in the, in the major leagues and. You know, I think those were two pretty good guys to, to build the trade around. And then, you know, the Hater, the lefty, and Hauser, the righty, you know, they're more back to the rotation, uh, you know, type of starters. You know, for me, you know, maybe Hater is a three, but I think he's probably more of a four, and Hauser's probably more of a five. But, um, I, you know, to get those guys as third and fourth best players in the deal, I, I didn't think they got the best that they could really expect. Shifting focus to the updated top 100 list, I think 22 players have already graduated. So many young players are excelling in the majors, whether they be rookies, first or second, third year players. Uh, do you think this trend will continue for years to come? Or have we just hit a wave of young elite players that have been exceptional over the past few years? I do think they're getting the opportunities sooner than later. Um, I, I don't know. I, I think it's more of an exceptional group of players. You know, the Chris Bryants, the Carlos Correa, the Noah Syndergaards, Usually, even the best players, it seems like a lot of them need some time to adjust to the big leagues. And for whatever reason, we've seen a lot of guys step right in and contribute right off the bat. How do you go about evaluating when you update the top hundred list, placing the the draft picks, the guys who really haven't even played yet in the minor leagues? Well, I mean, you know, ideally, when you're you're evaluating these guys, I mean, you're looking at you know tools and performance and projected uh, you know long range value. Uh, you know, that said, I mean, I, I think with the draft guys, while you don't have the minor league performance piece of it to know how they're going to fit, well, what you do have, you know, if you cover this stuff like we do, is, you know, you, you've covered these guys for a while. Uh, you know, the college guys you've seen against, you know, three years against, you know, usually some decent competition, whether college level or Team USA or Cape Cod League or whatever. Um, and I think what I try to do sometimes is, is compare them to players or stack them up against players at a different position. I mean, I'm sorry, at the same position. Uh, you know, like, like for instance, you know, this is obviously a shortstop draft this year. You know, top three picks in draft are Dancy Swanson, Alex Bregman, and Brendan Rodgers. And kind of, you know, 
where would you fit those guys in? You know, we wound up putting Brendan Rodgers third and fourth among shortstops. You're right ahead of Trey Turner. You know, Trey, you know, different types of players than Trey Turner, but Trey Turner was drafted last year too. Um, so it was recent enough. So kind of in my mind, when I'm stacking those guys up, it's like, okay, if these guys were all in one combined draft, what order would they go in? So that kind of helps a little bit too. You know, the the next shortstop on our list was Orlando Arcia, who I really like for the Brewers, and he's had a kind of a breakout year offensively. But he doesn't have the offensive track record before 2015, and I really do believe in the bats of Daisy Swanson and Brendan Rodgers. So I was more comfortable, you know, putting him ahead of of Arcia. So even though you don't have minor league performance to base, you know, you know, comparisons on, you kind of look at tools and types of players, and if, if they're similar enough in age, or you know, both came out of college recently, you know, how they stack up against each other, that type of stuff. I guess that's the way I try to tackle it. You have Moncada ranked at 10, which is just ahead of Swanson and Rogers. Um, if he were in the draft, would he have been the number one pick? I think he'd have a very good chance. I mean, as much as I like uh, Swanson and Rogers, you know, I mean, I don't know what Arizona would have done. But I, mean, if you, I like Anthony Swanson uh, a lot. But if you're stacking him up tool-wise, again, you know, I mean, you, at least you saw Swanson perform at a high level at Vanderbilt and you know, get top competition college series with Team USA. So you look at more track record before he, he signed than he did with Mankata. But if you're just going tool for tool, Mankata is a faster runner. Uh, he's got more power than Swanson. He might have a, a little bit more arm strength. I do think Swanson can play shortstop, which Mankata can't. But, you know, I, I believe in Dansby Swanson. But if you're looking at tools, I think John Mankata is going to have more offensive impact than Dansby Swanson. I think he's going to be an up-the-middle guy, too. And the interesting thing about Moncada is we basically found out how much the number one pick is actually worth because the Red Sox paid $30 million to him and $30 million in overage charges. So the number one pick in real money is $60 million, and they are actually getting like $6 million. So the cap is working. Yeah, well, I mean, you didn't have the cap. I mean, I, I just think if you look at the fact that, you know, the draft, one of the reasons it came about was Rick Reichard got you know, $205,000 as a free agent in 1964. And, I believe it was until 1988 or 1989 before anybody copped that bonus in draft. Um, and, they, you know, you look at a couple of years ago when, when Chris Benson, not, well, not a couple of years ago, I guess I'm getting old now, Ross, but 1996, Chris Benson was number one overall pick, consensus number one overall guy. He gets $2 million. Number two pick, Travis Lee, becomes a free agent through a loophole. He gets $10 million. I, You know, I, I've always kind of felt like it, it felt like, you know, when I look at 96, you almost like a five-to-one ratio. And, and really, if you take the Anthony Swanson six and a half million and multiply it by by five million, you know you get thirty two and a half, which is pretty much the bonus Makata got. You know, and then the Red Sox had to pay it to seal out as a penalty. But I don't think there's any question that the draft, you know, really suppresses bonuses of these guys, which is why I think those picks are so valuable and why it's still the most cost effective way to build a team. Buxton is still number one overall. How big of a concern is his injury history? You know, it doesn't really bother me because I think they've been more fluky. It's been, you know, guy ran into him in the outfield and he got a concussion. He, he broke a finger on the slide. He sprained a thumb. You know, none of these injuries to me are, are repeated injuries. None of these injuries are anything that will affect him long term. So I think they're more fluky. I, I don't think he's one of these super tightly wound guys. It's not like there's a lot of muscle strains, um, you know, where he's like, a, you know, overly – uh, you know, overly, you know, tight, tight as an athlete, and that's going to keep happening to him. I, I just think it's a fluke. How did the Astros orchestrate Daz Cameron falling to them in the second round? 
You know, I don't even think they had orchestrated. Um, so, you know, it, it, you know, I, I think what helped is Daz Cameron was advised by Scott Boris. And I think when, you know, Scott, you know, I think when Scott throws out a number, it makes people more, more apt to believe that Scott's guy will walk away from a huge bonus and go to college or, or go back into the draft the next year than they are with other agents. And, you know, it was known. I mean, the number that I kept hearing was $5 million, and you had to guarantee Daz $5 million if you even wanted him to show up at your pre-draft workout. And I think it only worked out for two or three teams um, because of that. And, you know, that turned some teams off. Uh, you know, the interesting thing is I think the Twins really liked him. I think the Twins might have taken him at six. And their slot was, I think, $3.86 million, and he wanted to sign it for four. So it's not like he couldn't have gotten four from the Twins. But so I, I'm not, you know, I'm not real sure why they deemed it necessary to scare off the Twins, but but they did. And, you know, I don't know how much of it was Boris doing this at the Astros' behest or Boris doing this on his own on Cameron's behalf. But, uh, yeah, it, it, you know, it, with the pools being as tight as they are, there's only uh, a few teams that can afford to pay a guy a $4 million bonus or you know, even fewer that could pay a $5 million bonus, which was the asking price everybody was hearing. It just gets to the point, you know, I think after you know, he got past, you know, the first six, seven, eight picks, you know, nobody was going to take him. And the Astros had, you know, a large pool. They were in position to spend more money on the draft in terms of bonuses than anybody ever spend. And, uh, you know, that's what they did. You know, it worked out perfectly for him. Looking at, at the updated list and the list really over the past couple of years, are we seeing the demise of the elite first baseman? I think that's more cyclical than anything, to be honest with you. Uh, you know, I just think there's some years where, where certain positions are strong and others aren't. I mean, you could say that, but the same token, um, you know, Josh Bell, yeah, I do think there's power going to come. He's having a pretty nice year in double-A. Yeah, Dominic Smith has finally come on. A.J. Reed's having a huge year. Uh, Greg Bird's finding his power stroke again. Casey Gillespie, another guy from last year's draft, is, is hitting. So is Bobby Bradley. So I, I don't think that, you know there's only you know one of them on the top 100, but I actually think the position is looking up compared to where it was coming into this season. And who knows? You know, I mean, well, you know, it's, I mean, some of it too is what positions these guys play in the minors. I mean, between you and me, I think Kyle Schwarber's best position probably is first base. But, you know, the Cubs have Anthony Rizzo. They want to make him a catcher. I bet he ends up in left field. But, you know, you, you very easily, you know, if Kyle Schwarber was a first baseman and was playing first base for the Cubs right now, we might look at the position a little bit differently. Some of the prospects at the beginning of the year had a big jump forward. Raphael Devers went from 96 to 15. What did he do to improve his stock that much? I think he just proved himself against full season competition. Um, you know, he was a guy who people thought, you know, had big power potential and, you know, he got a severe test by going to low class A at age 18. I don't think he'll be 18 all season and he's performed. Um, you know, I think, you know, people are even more bullish on the bat. I'm not sure he stays at third base, but I mean, he's an 18 year old who, you know, is going to wind up, you know, he's hitting 280. He's slugging 440, which for an 18-year-old class A is pretty impressive. You know, he needs to tighten the strike zone a little bit, not walking a lot, but not striking out excessively at all. And I, and I think when you see guys, you know, at, at some point in the next year or so, you know, Miguel Snow's going to graduate off the list. Torbo will graduate off the list. Joey Gallo will graduate off the list. 
there might come a point where, you know, early next season, we say, hey, you know, Raphael Beavers might be the best power-hitting prospect in baseball. And if he moves off third, where does he move to? You know, I think you're talking first base, left field, maybe. He's got some arms, right? Maybe you play him right. He's not going to be a very good runner. I mean, <laughs> although I, I was watching Luis Arena start tonight and watching Halen Ramirez in left, and if Halen Ramirez is the bar in left field, I would think Raphael Beavers to play left field. United could probably play left field, too. He can't be the bar in left field, though. Hanley Ramirez playing left <laughs> field this year has been like the worst outfield I've ever seen. It's It's been awful. No, he, and he, 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 he did not look good in the ninth inning either. He kind of held back in a ball, but I think most guys would have caught. But yeah, I'd, I was just more joking there. But I think Beavers could be first base. He could be corner outfield. And in the last couple of days here, you mentioned uh, Severino. We've seen three pitching prospects make their debut, Henry Owens, Severino, and Jonathan Gray. Three very different types of pitchers. What can those fan bases expect from those three guys? Well, I think the guy who probably I think can make the biggest impact. I think he's got the best combination of stuff and, and control command, and, and he showed it, you know, right before we, we started talking, Ross. And Luis Severino, you know, I, I think he's got, you know, I think Jonathan Gray, you know, his stuff is, is comparable to Severino's. You know, they, they, they both can light up a radar gun and have nasty breaking stuff. And you know, Severino's, I, I think, just great sliders his number two pitch. Severino's changed his number two pitch, but. I think the difference between those two guys, well, two differences. One is the control command, and two is, you know, Severino doesn't have to pitch in course field. And then with Henry Owens, you know, Owens is an interesting guy. Uh, He's not a guy who's going to light up a radar gun, but I think he's deceptive, and he gets swings and misses with three pitches. And I think with him, he kind of backslid a little bit this year in AAA with his control and command, Um, and I think that's going to be the key for him. He's got tremendous change-up, solid fastball, curveball and you know looked pretty good last night Tuesday night against the Yankees for five innings and then kind of ran into trouble in the six. Nick Gordon as Devers rose Nick Gordon fell he went from 33 to 91 what steps back did he take? You know I don't know if it's so much Nick's fault as it might be at least on our list and <laughs> my fault and Jonathan Mayo's fault because I think we had him ranked too high coming into the year more so than his stock has plummeted I think with Nick, I mean, we're talking about a guy who was number five overall pick in 2014 draft. And he was a deserving, you know, it wasn't like he got overdrafted. I mean, he was, you know, a lot of teams were going to pick him in that range. He didn't go five. He was going to go somewhere six to ten. Look, I don't know if there's a huge feeling on Nick. I think he's a good defender at shortstop. But offensively, you know, he's not, he can run. He's not a runner like he, like his brother D. Uh, I think he's more of a guy who, could hit maybe 270 with not a lot of power, and you know he, he's not going to be a 40 steal guy. You know, and then he'll play a good shortstop for you. And that's a good player, but I think we probably ranked him a little too high based on him going fifth overall in the draft. And you know we we moved Trey Turner ahead of him, and I just think he's a better defensive player than Trey Turner. But I think Trey Turner can bring a lot more to the table offensively. Uh, I think Trey Turner is probably going to hit you know for a similar average, but with more power and a lot more speed. Julio Urias, who is it Urias or Urias? I think it's Urias, but I've heard it a million different ways. Okay, well, he had you have him ranked number five, and he had elective surgery during the season to to repair his eye. Why did he have this procedure during the season? I think it was a. I think I think it was something that the Dodgers fully supported, and they have. I don't know if they suggested it. But I think it was basically a way to keep his innings down, to be honest with you. Um, you, know, he, you know, the problem is he's so good that it, it's hard to, you know, the last guy I remember this good, this young was Felix Hernandez. 
And the Mariners were in a dilemma, like, you know, hey, we want to win with this guy, but at the same point, he kind of cleared every developmental put in front of him. Yeah, the big leagues. I think Fernandez got to the big leagues when he was 18 years old, right? If I'm, I'm trying to think. Yes. No, I guess I'm sorry. I think like he was 19. Yeah, but he got to the big leagues when he was 19, and I remember talking to the Mariners when they were bringing him up. They're trying to keep his innings down, and it was just, it was tough. I mean, he threw 172 innings as a 19 year old, he threw 150 innings as an 18 year old. And it was, it was not something they necessarily wanted to do, but he was just so good. He was getting guys out, he was eating up a lot of innings. And, Last year, they kept on tight pitch counts. He only pitched about 88 innings in Class A ball at age 17. And, and I wrote, and I still believe this, as crazy as it may sound, I thought they should have called him up in September. Not to start, but their bullpen was a mess, especially from the left side. I, You know, and you look at what happened to him in the playoffs, I, I thought he could have contributed. And I think, you know, this year you can make a case that he could have been up in their rotation at some point. That's how good he is. I mean, he's having no problems in double-A at age 18. But I think... They just want to be in a long-winded answer to your question, Ross. I think it was more of a way to keep his innings down. You know, did this way, you know, he's got another month in the minors, you know, and if he's fresh, you know, maybe we will see him in September this year. But, I mean, he, he well, I don't think he's going to get to 88 innings this year. That'd be super exciting if Dodgers put him on the playoff roster for that push. That would be amazing. Yeah, I mean, I just think, I mean, he, he, he's, he's throwing more strikes this year. He's left-handed. I mean, you can't argue with his stuff. Yeah, I'm not saying, you know, throw him in the rotation, but why not use him as a lefty out of the bullpen? Why not call him up in September? Yeah, I wrote the same thing last year. Why not call him in September? You know, let him throw six or seven times. You know, if he gets hit around or he looks intimidated or he looks tired, don't do it. But, like, if he stuff plays, like, I think it'll play in one inning stints, you have played down the only lefty reliever. You, you just add it to your playoff uh, bullpen. How much when a prospect comes up and struggles – does that concern your future projections of him? Blake Swihart got a starting opportunity because of injuries, and he really struggled. Does that change what you think he'll become? I think it depends on the prospect and the situation he's in. I don't hold Swihart against him, his performance against him, because I think he was kind of, you know, they, they basically had the bad luck of, you know, Christian Vasquez was supposed to be one of the primary catchers. He got lost for the season before the season began, then Ryan Hannigan got hurt. And they just were stuck at catcher. They didn't have any other options. Uh, a catcher. I think ideally he would have been given more time to develop in Triple A. Uh, you know, I think he's. You know, right now he's got like a, a almost six to one strikeout to walk ratio, which is not what he was in the in the minors at all. Um, and so in his case, I look at it like, hey, he got promoted before his time. I don't hold it against him. If you had a guy who. You know, I, you know, I'm trying to think of the example off the top of my head, but if you had a guy who you said, okay, that guy's got nothing left to prove hey, at this point in AAA, like he had a full year in AAA and he did well, and that guy came up and struggled, they might bother me a little bit. Oh, yeah, like, I'll give you another example. Joey Gallo, we saw him come up, and he struck out, you know, nearly half of that bat in the big leagues. But, you know, I mean, Jimmy Gallo hadn't played in AAA when he got promoted. He was only 21. We knew he was going to strike out. Um, he really has kind of done the same thing and, and not performed very well. He seems like he's either hit a home run or, or done nothing in AAA since he's gone back down. But I, I don't hold that against him either. I kind of take it on a case-to-case basis. But, and I do like it for the four. I mean, a lot of these guys, it's natural for these guys to struggle. I think a lot of times guys try to do too much. Um, and so I don't. I try not to hold it against them. I, I think it's easy to write guys off too early if you do that. Yeah, Michael Taylor is a guy that that may raise a flag to me. He he was an older prospect. This is his age twenty four season. Good defender, but not hitting well enough that I don't think he's gonna, he may not stick around for long. 
Yeah, although, I mean, with him, too, I mean, yeah, you know, there's, there's some truth to that, but he's also a guy who develops very slowly, too. I mean, coming into this year, he barely played above double A. So even with Michael Taylor, I mean, we always know he's going to gonna strike out some, you know, which he has. I mean, he needs to tighten the strikes down a little bit. I still like the combination of power and speed. I still think there's there's very good defensive value there. Uh, you know, so I, I guess I still am not holding against him, but I get some from the Chevrolet game tonight. I, I got who I do worry about, and I think it's a shame because I could be a gold glover if he could just hit. Uh, you know, I, I've seen enough of Jackie Bradley now where we, we've had, what, I think over 500 at-bats, and he's hitting 189 or so in the majors. And I don't know. I don't know if he tries to do too much in the big leagues, but, you know, like with Jackie Bradley Jr. now, I, I, I just don't have faith in that bat anymore. Are there still, do you still see there as elite prospects uh, in the system at this point in the, who have not uh, been called up with Correa and Bryant and Peterson and all of these guys who have graduated? We have seen the influx of talent. Have we reached its peak for this wave or do you still see Buxton and Seeger as potential impact elite level prospects? No, I do. I think they are. I think Lucas Giolito is. I think Urias is. Um, I think J.P. Crawford is. Oh, I don't think he's any. I don't like Casey Crawford. I don't think he's going to be. I think he's going to be more of a good all-around player than like a guy who hits 300 with 20 homers. You know, but uh, you know, I still think there's more to come. I don't know if we'll see the rest of those guys this year or make much of an impact this year. But it's you know, doing this top 100 mid-season it kind of makes you reassess where things stand. And you know, there are list right now. It still includes guys like Snow and Schwarber who will probably graduate for the season, but. You know, I still think it's a pretty deep top ten. You know, just just from one to ten. You know, Buxton, Seager, Giolito, Samoa, Urias, Crawford, Schwarber, Gallo, Glassnow, Mancata, and if we lose a couple guys, graduation, Brendan Rodgers, Dancy Swanson, next two guys, and you know, go on and on. You know, Turner, Arcia, Devers, Severino, and you go on and on and on. I I still think it looks like a pretty good list. If I'm looking at Alex Reyes at twenty and Daniel Norris at twenty five and you know, Jose De Leon at 29, it, it still looks like a pretty good list to me. Looking ahead briefly, does next year's draft class look deeper than this year's? I don't think so. Uh, you know, I, it's, it, I think it's easy. You know, I think, you know, I, hopefully it'll be healthier. I think this year's draft class got hit by a number of pitching injuries, but it's not, to me, I, I don't look at next year's draft and say, oh, this is an unbelievable draft. I just think, most years, the drafts are going to look somewhat mediocre because I think the Kings do such a great job of picking players out of high school that, you know, and signing them that the college crops are usually thinned out. I mean, you're always going to have some pitchers emerge as they get stronger, uh, you know, and start to reach their projection in college. But it's just, it seems like the vast majority of quality position players don't make it to college. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at our top 100 here, you know, from the top, you know, position play wise. Buxton High School, Seager High School, Snow International, Crawford High School, Schwarber's a college exception, Gallo High School, Moncada International, Rogers High School, Swanson College, uh, Turner College, Garcia's International, Devers International, Mazar's International. I mean, I wasn't calling there, but what is that? You know, two out of about 12 or 13 guys were, were college position players. That seems like a trend that's going to continue. More and more high school kids are going to sign. It's, it's baseball's biggest advantage, they don't seem to realize this, is that they can give young kids money, and they can give it to a money at a younger age than all of the other sports. Yeah, and I think with the position players, it's, it's, it's a little easier to do that with, with the pitchers. 
One, you have injury risk. And two, I mean, there, there's pitchers you like out of high school sometimes who are projectable and they're athletic. But, you know, maybe they're throwing 80 miles an hour because they're 18 years old. And those guys typically wind up going to college because you're not you, – the team's not going to pay a pitcher based on his projection of 18. But, the, but the, you know, if you're athletic, if you show some hitting ability and you have some athleticism, those guys never make it to college. It's very, very rare. You know, Dansby Swanson, you know, is an exception. Dansby Swanson probably could have had second-round money. Oh, well, I, I shouldn't say it never happens. I guess, I guess it happens sometimes. But, you know, it has to be a kid who, who really has his heart set and going, going to college. You know, Dansby Swanson was like that, and Alex Bregman, the number two pick in this year's draft, was like that. But most of the time, especially if you're an up-the-middle player uh, and you have any ability and athleticism, the, the pros are going to make, you know, pay what it takes to get you to sign out of high school. You've been listening to Jim Callis. You can read his stuff on MLB.com, MLBpipeline.com. Give him a follow on Twitter at Jim Callis MLB. Jim, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Yeah, it was good talking to you, Ross. I really enjoyed it.